If you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, our study will continue on in the book of Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. We are in the middle of a series of confrontations that the religious leaders of Jerusalem have brought to Jesus, seeking to discredit him, seeking to undermine him, seeking to cause him to contradict himself and thus lose credibility so that they might be able to be rid of our Lord. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. The scriptures read, Some Sadducees, who say there, that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact, that the dead rise again. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks, for you are the God of the living, not of the dead. And we pray, God, that your word would shine brightly on our hearts, that we might understand, know, and see great and mighty things from thy law. In your Son's precious name we pray, amen. In the book entitled, Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross, in which Nancy Guthrie is the editor, there is an account, a story about the resurrection, about a minister who was in Italy. And there, when he was in Italy, he saw the grave of a man who had died hundreds of years, hundreds of years before. And this man who had died before was an unbeliever. He was not a Christian. In fact, he was completely against Christianity. But he was a little bit afraid of Christianity as well. So the man had a huge stone slab put over his grave so that he would not have to be raised from the dead in case there was a resurrection from the dead. And he had insignias put all over the slab saying, quote, I do not want to be raised from the dead. 
I don't believe in it, unquote, etc., etc. Well, evidently, when he was buried, an acorn must have fallen into the grave. So hundreds of years later, this acorn had grown up through the grave and had split the slab. Now there was a tall, towering oak tree there. And the minister looked at it and he said, if an acorn, which has the power of biological life in it, can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? Unquote. Well, here are a group of Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. In fact, for them, the entire account, the entire idea of a resurrection to them was fake news, to use today's colloquialism. So they concocted here a hypothetical situation for Jesus. They concocted a hypothetical story hoping to trounce Jesus. And today the confrontation with Jesus is about the resurrection. Now in biblical times, most Jews already believed in a resurrection. In the Old Testament, when we look at the book of Job, it says in Job 19, 25 to 27, as for me, Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. Or in the book of Psalms 16, 9 to 11, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices, my flesh will also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And rather than Daniel 12, too, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but to others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Among the Jews and among other Old Testament passages, Jews generally believed in the resurrection to come. Even in the extra-biblical books, the apocryphal books, the apocalypse of Baruch, for instance, in 2 Baruch, it describes a traditional Jewish belief in life after death. It says, for the earth shall then assuredly restore the dead. It shall make no change in their form, but as it has received, so it shall restore them. And as I delivered them unto it, so shall it raise them. Now that happened to be the teaching of the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees believed that you would be resurrected, and they taught that you would be resurrected with the same infirmities, the same characteristics, the same relationships that you had. So, in other words, you have bad eyesight like me, you're going to need new glasses when you are resurrected from the dead. You're, you're going to be short like me, well, I'm not going to be any taller in my resurrected body. You have difficulties with your health, you're going to be resurrected with those same difficulties. The Pharisees taught that. You have relationships, those relationships will stay the same. That's what the Pharisees would teach. If you're a Jew, in fact, they believed all Jews would be resurrected in Israel, and some even taught that there were hidden tunnels underneath the earth. When the resurrection came, well, the Jews and their dead bodies, wherever they were on the earth, would roll all the way to Israel and be resurrected from the dead. 
They had all sorts of add-ons to the scriptures of what they believed would happen life after death. And it was a common belief that there would be resurrection after one died, except for the Sadducees. Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, and so they posited this idea to Jesus. They posited this question to Jesus in order, A, to discredit the idea of a resurrection, number one, and two, to discredit Jesus. So let's look at this question that is here, verse 18. It says, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Now, the ones who are asking this question are the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they were one of four major religious groups. There were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees were the two major parties that, that were part of the Sanhedrin, this ruling body of the Jews, the 70 that were there that ruled over the Jews, plus the one at the top, the high priest, which made 71. He was a Sadducee. That's how the Sadducees worked. And they and the Pharisees made most of the decisions because they were the ones that were in power. They didn't agree on anything. They were uh, philosophically and theologically on opposite sides of the spectrum. The Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty. The Sadducees believed in free will. The, the Pharisees, they believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees said, nope, no angels, no demons. The Pharisees believed in the entire Old Testament plus all of the add-ons, the rabbinic writings, the Talmud, all of that sort of thing. And the Sadducees, they only held to the first five books of the Bible, which are also known as the books of Moses or the Pentateuch. They only held to that, and they strictly held to that. The Pharisees, they were influential among the common people. They had common jobs as well. They were sort of the average, average middle-class individual who was very pious, very legalistic, and they followed Jesus all over the land, trying to trip up Jesus, fuming at the things that he would teach. The Sadducees, they were the wealthy ones. They were the aristocrats. They were the ones who were in charge of the temple. They ran the temple business, and their main focus was upon the temple in Jerusalem. They weren't the primary ones that followed Jesus all over the land of Israel during his ministry. The Sadducees were markedly different than the Pharisees. And even though there were so many more Pharisees in number than there were Sadducees, the Sadducees had great influence, had great power. In fact, they sort of partnered and colluded with Rome because that's how they were able to get their seats of power in the Sanhedrin. It was by Rome's blessing that whoever was going to be a high priest, they wanted that favor. And so they curried the favor of Rome in order to be able to sit in positions of power in the Sanhedrin, and they ran the temple. And that was the Sadducees. And they came here asking Jesus a question related to the resurrection. And as the text says here, they didn't believe in a resurrection, but the Pharisees did. And they came. And the Bible says that they questioned Jesus. They had come, as I mentioned, to discredit Jesus, just like the other three that will be here in this series. They came to trip up Jesus, to embarrass him, to shame him in public, in order that he might lose popular support among the people, because they hated Jesus. The one thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the scribes and the elders, they all hated Jesus. And so... Even though they were perhaps on opposite ends of the spectrum, they were perhaps enemies sometimes. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they decide they're going to come together. 
and asked Jesus this question. The Sadducees did. They came to pelt him with questions, and they opposed Jesus, not for the purpose of learning, but for the purpose of trying to discredit him. I remember when I was in junior high, I had a couple of neighborhood friends, and these neighborhood friends lived down the street from me, and <clears throat> sometimes I would go, and I grew up with them, went to grade school with them as well. Their names were Alex and Andrew, and uh, they were... There were a couple of Jehovah Witnesses as well. So we played after school sometimes. But I was a young Christian, only been a Christian for a couple of years. And so I remember we were in junior high, we'd meet at the bus stop and we'd take the bus to school together. And I would bring my Bible to the bus stop and we started talking about their beliefs. And they started talking about the things that they believed and asked me the things that I believed. And we began to talk about the things that we believed, began to try to ask questions, and, and I, it was interesting because, you know, they were two brothers, and it reminded me of, you know, if you watch the old pro wrestling, well, all of those things, one brother would ask a question, and I wouldn't be able to answer because I, I didn't know very much, and uh, so, so I thought about my Sunday school lessons, and as soon as he asked me that question, it stumped me with one question, the other brother felt like his role was to rub it in. And he'd say, yeah, take that, take that, yeah. And he'd bring up another question. And the other brother would find that same role to say, yeah, see, that's right, etc." And I'd hang my head and go home, call up my counselor, and ask him my difficult questions, and then come back. And I'd ask them a question by which they'd be stumped. And it would go on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and things like that. It was my development of apologetics early on. But they didn't want to know the real answer. Finally, their, their, their counselor told them not to talk with me anymore after I brought up the whole situation with Abraham and Abraham in, in, in the bosom of uh, uh, that thing with heaven, etc. So it was, a, it was a time they just didn't want to know. They just wanted to help me with questions. and They wanted to get it right. They wanted to be victorious and winning an argument just like these Sadducees. That is the scene that is here. These religious leaders... Were, were representatives of the Sanhedrin. They didn't want to know. They wanted to pummel Jesus with question after question, hoping to win the public debate and the public favor, the seemingly impossible questions for Jesus. So the Bible says in verse 18, they came to Jesus and they began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry his wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, the situation that they're describing here is what is called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. It's an Old Testament teaching, and I'd like you to take a look at that. In the book of Deuteronomy, if you turn your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. Deuteronomy, chapter 25, there's a various laws that are taught in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was written with various laws given to the second generation of Jews that was just about to enter into the promised land. And we look at Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. The scriptures say in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother and so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. 
this was the practice. This was the practice in Old Testament times. Why? So the family line and the family inheritance would be kept within that tribe. So if you had a married brother who had died without children, then another brother in the family was to take his sister-in-law and bear children by her so that they might bear children and keep, again, the inheritance and the family line. And this would only happen if the other brother who was living was not married because they didn't want him to divorce his wife or commit uh, polygamy. This was not some sort of exceptional case for polygamous marriage or divorce. This was a case in which there was a single brother who was unmarried and he would marry his brother's wife, take his wife, and bear children so that the inheritance would come by them and continue on within that family line. And God took this practice very, very seriously. When we look in the book of Genesis, chapter 28, verses 6 through 10, one of Judah's sons, one of Judah's sons, his name was Ur. And Ur was a very wicked man. He was a very wicked man, and God took his life. So Judah told one of his other sons, Onan, you go and take Ur's wife, and you fulfill your duty towards your sister-in-law. But Onan did not do so. He pretended to, and it says that he spilled his seed, and God also took Onan's life for his sin, for not performing his leveret marriage duty. Another example in the Bible would be that of Ruth and Boaz, the book of Ruth. When there was no surviving unmarried brother to marry the widow Ruth, well, another close relative was to assume that duty, and that became Boaz, who was known as the kinsman redeemer. And so the Sadducees stretched this leveret marriage hypothetical situation out. They stretched this hypothetical situation and said, look, there's seven brothers. The first took a wife. He died, leaving no children. So the second took this, his sister-in-law, who's now a widow. He married her. He died, leaving no children. The third, likewise, all the way up to number seven. And in the resurrection, which they didn't believe, they said, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven married her. Now, the idea of this seven husbands story, it could have come from an apocryphal writing, which in the apocryphal book of Tobit, there's a story about a woman who marries seven men and remains childless in Tobit 3, 7 to 15. Or they possibly could have concocted this story. But either way, they didn't believe in the resurrection because they could not find it in the first five books of the Bible. But they did believe. They did believe in the ideal of one man and one woman in marriage. They did believe in monogamy. They didn't believe in polygamy. So, here is why they pose the question. They pose the question because if Jesus were to answer, assuming the resurrection, and say, well, in the resurrection, blah, 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 then in their mind's eye, whose wife is she going to be? She's going to be married to seven men. That's going to be polygamy in the resurrection. That can't be. That's against the word of God. That would make Jesus looked like an incompetent rabbi and would go on to prove their own belief that there is no resurrection because how could a woman be resurrected and have a polygamous marriage, you see? On the other hand, if Jesus were to say there is no resurrection and he were to say, well, there's no resurrection, he would be contradicting himself. Why? Because not long before this, Jesus said in John eleven twenty three, 23, he said to 
Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This is related to Lazarus. And Jesus said to her in 1125, John, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And shortly afterwards, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So in the minds of the Pharisee, if Jesus answered, yes, there is a resurrection, he's going to end up with a situation where there's a wife and seven husbands, and there's polygamy. And that's not according to God's word, it's according to them and their understanding. If Jesus says, no, there is no resurrection, then he'll be contradicting himself. In either case, he's going to lose, lose credibility before the people, and they're going to be able to take advantage of that. Well, it was because of their biblical ignorance and their understanding that would be unveiled by Jesus as he answers. And this is shown in the very first comment by Jesus in his response. Verse 24. Jesus says to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you are not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God? The Sadducees were gravely mistaken. They were in error, that's what it means, to wander off the track, to be led astray. They thought they knew the Bible, but they didn't. They didn't comprehend either the power of the Word of God. And in today's vernacular, that verse comes across as, boy, you really don't understand what you're even talking about. You don't understand the Scriptures. You don't understand the power of God. And that's how sometimes people can be, aren't they? They come to you with a particular question. They're not interested in knowing the answer. They're interested in causing you to stumble over your lack of understanding when really it's them who doesn't understand. Maybe they've gone on the internet and found some question that they found that might stump Christians and they've gone through a list of objections. Maybe they have a list of objections related to the Bible or Christianity, some stereotypes that are false, some things that they've heard in the past used, and they rattle that off without really understanding what the Bible truly says. That's sort of the spirit here. You do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God. So Jesus tells them plainly, number one, Marriage is only for this life. He tells them marriage is only for this life. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus is coming again in the future, and there will be a resurrection, but there will be no marriage in heaven. There won't be any births, there won't be any deaths, no families like we know them here. You'll have perfect relationships with those around you. There's no marriage, there's no need for procreation. In your relationships with everyone, you'll have perfect relationships in your glorified, holy state. There'll be harmony with those that you know. There won't be any fighting, no more arguing, no more dissonance and conflict that we find here on this earth. And you'll experience relationships as you haven't experienced them before. But simply because there's no marriage, it doesn't mean that somehow in heaven you'll be resurrected and you'll be some sort of androgynous race that is genderless. No. It appears that you'll be keeping your gender in your resurrected body. In John chapter 20, verse 15, when Jesus saw Mary after his resurrected, Jesus says to her in John 20, verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And it says there, she 
supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She saw the resurrected Lord Jesus, and she saw him as a man. And likewise, many people who saw Jesus after his resurrection will be the same gender and believe that if we're going to be raised just like Christ, we'll keep the same gender. What will you look like? Am I going to get a new face? Am I going to look like the same? Am I going to look in shape? Otherwise, like I'm not now, am I going to have wings? Am I going to have a halo? What am I going to look like? No, that is Hallmark card theology. <laughs> Your glorified body will resemble you somehow. Somehow, you in your resurrected body will be recognizable. Even if somebody hasn't seen you for a long time, they'll be able to recognize you. I mean, when Jesus was resurrected from his glorified body, he was recognized by his disciples. He was recognized by hundreds of people. When Jesus, in addition, was transformed in the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, there was Peter. There was Peter, and somehow he recognized the two individuals who were with Jesus, who were Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah he had never met before. Moses and Elijah lived hundreds of years before Peter. But somehow, Peter recognized them. He knew who they were. I don't think you're going to have to have name tags on you. Say, hi, my name is Methuselah. No, somehow people will know who you are. I don't know how that is, but we have an example from Peter that he recognized Moses, he recognized Elijah, and people, I believe, will recognize you as well. When we, are, when, we are, when we are resurrected, the Bible says we will be like Christ in some ways, perhaps in our glorified state. 1 John 3, 2 says, we know him when he shall appear, we shall be like him. So, what was Christ like in his resurrected body? Well, for Christ, you recall that they were able to see his marks on his hands. He could be touched as Thomas touched him. He could simply be certain places. I don't know how all that works. He talked with people, such as the men on the road to Emmaus. He ate food, not out of necessity, but he ate food. And there is food. There is fruit from the trees in heaven in Revelation 22 too. Imagine that. You'll be able to eat in heaven all that you want, and it'll taste great. Jesus even said in Luke 22, 17 to 18, Take this cup, divide it among you, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. The promise was that he would once again join them in drinking the fruit of the vine together in heaven, celebrating together for the glory of God. So you will be recognizable. You will have a glorified body in your resurrection. You'll be like Christ in some ways. People will be able to recognize you. You'll be the same gender. You'll be recognizable by your friends and others and those that have never perhaps met you. Number two, Jesus not only says marriage is not going to happen in heaven and that we're going to be glorified, but there will be a resurrection. Number two, there will be a resurrection. Verse 26, but regarding the fact, he says, that the dead rise again. Regarding the fact that the dead rise again. 
The Sadducees had prided themselves. They really prided themselves in the fact that they knew the scriptures. And the idea that we know the scriptures. We know what the Bible says. They held tightly to the first five books of Moses. And to them, they would say, we cannot find anything of the resurrection in the first five books of Moses. But Jesus refutes that claim by saying, have you not read in the book of Moses? He refers to the things they believe. In the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long been dead. The time of the burning bush is about 1500 BC. The time of Abraham was about 2100 BC, some five to six hundred years earlier. And yet God says, I am the God of Abraham. Not I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob and Isaac. Not I was the God of Jacob and Isaac. Why? Because Abraham is alive. Isaac is alive. Jacob is alive. That is why Jesus says that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living he uses the scriptures that they held so tightly to to proclaim that God is the God of the living, that there is a resurrection, and those individuals, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are alive. The doctrine of the resurrection is not some secondary belief. It is primary. And the Sadducees thought they knew that there was no evidence of a resurrection in the first five books of Moses, and Jesus points this out to them. Now, the doctrine of the resurrection is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. That is the takeaway from today. Why? It is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith that you need to hold tightly to. Three reasons. Number one, first, Christians, to Christians, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is essential to salvation. It is essential to salvation. Romans 10, 9, and 10 tells us, you must believe in the resurrection to be a Christian. Verse 9, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is salvation in no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered, died, and was raised from the dead. It is a part of the gospel message. And without believing in the resurrection, one is not saved. Because he paid for your sins, those who had come to Christ. You think of Christ's resurrection? Perhaps you can think of it like a, like a store receipt, as one pastor illustrates. It's like a store receipt. You're in a, you're in a store, you buy whatever goods you have, and you get your receipt. You're at Costco, you better have that receipt in hand. Why? Because when you exit that door, you go all the way out that door, they're going to ask you for that receipt. Or maybe you're in another store and the plain clothes security person stops and then says, can I look in your bag? What are you going to do? You're going to pull out your receipt. You're going to pull out your receipt and you say, well, nope, this has been paid for and this is the proof. I do not have to pay for it again. And the resurrection is like this giant receipt stamped across history for everyone to see. A receipt that allows you to know that your future is sure because your 
Salvation has been paid for. The penalty of sin has been paid for. You don't need to be one who will pay for it again. If you had no receipt, well, you'd be arrested, booked for shoplifting. But Jesus' payment means you don't have to pay for it again. It is essential to your salvation that that payment has been made by the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6.4 tells us, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. We might walk in newness of life. Why? So that because Christ was raised from the dead. It is essential to your salvation. Secondly, the resurrection is essential to the entire Christian faith. It's an essential to the entire Christian faith, not just your salvation, but to the entire Christian faith. Our faith rests on the fact of the resurrection. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, Christianity would be just like any other religion in the world, where the founder and the leader is dead. Jesus' resurrection is proof payment over our sin, and the law of sin and death has no claim on that anymore. You know, a helpful illustration I read was this. Imagine to yourself that there is a crime that was committed. Maybe you committed a crime. And that crime, the law says, you've got to go to jail for 10 years. For 10 years, you're in jail as a punishment for that crime. Or somebody's in jail for the punishment of that crime. All right? The day that that person comes out of jail, he is paid for the crime. The law has no more claim on him anymore. He is a free man. The wages of sin is death. And when Christ died, he paid for that debt. And when he came out of the grave, it meant that it was paid. Christ's resurrection proves that it was fully paid. The law has no more claim on him anymore. There is freedom because of Christ's payment. There is freedom because of Christ's payment and his resurrection is proof of that payment over our sin and the law of sin and death has no claim anymore. And so the resurrection is a resounding, resounding trumpet for the cause of Christianity because it is fundamental to our entire Christian faith. And it was fundamental even in the apostolic early preaching of the church. In the early sermons of the church, we look in the book of Acts. The very first sermon after Jesus arose from the dead was found in Acts chapter 2, preached by Peter. And what did he preach on? The theme was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the theme of apostolic preaching throughout the book of Acts. Peter preached on it in Acts chapter 2. He had a sermon in Acts 4. He had a sermon in Acts 10, all about the resurrection. Then Stephen preached on it in Acts chapter 7. Philip preached on it in Acts chapter 8, all about the resurrection. And the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul came along in Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 13, in Acts chapter 28, all about the resurrection, the centrality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in the preaching of the apostles in the early church is undeniable. It was a central theme. It was not God loves you, he has a wonderful plan for your life. It was 
Jesus has been raised from the dead, and therefore you have hope. It is a foundational truth of Christianity. So don't ever go to some group or church that doesn't believe in the resurrection, or they believe that Jesus was only raised in spirit and not the body. Jesus was raised from the dead, had a glorified body. There are few exceptions. There are a few, with the exception of a few heresies in the history of the church. In the history of the church, the resurrection of Jesus has never been challenged until the past couple hundred years. When this philosophy of humanism, when this philosophy of skepticism has come into the church, and now you'll find all sorts of theories about the resurrection. Oh, no, Jesus didn't really die. He kind of swooned on the cross. He didn't really die. He sort of uh, uh, fainted, and they, they rescued him, and Jesus lived after the tomb, and he had a family, etc., etc., etc. Never has that been the case within the history of the church except for the past few couple hundred years in our new era. God provided the proof in the scriptures. Hundreds of people saw Jesus afterwards. Various people at various times, eyewitnesses' accounts, which would be so difficult to fabricate the evidence and the claims of Jesus as the miracle of the resurrection. So it's essential to your own salvation, is an essential doctrine to the Christian faith, and it is essential, thirdly, to your future hope. To your future hope. You have no hope if there is no resurrection. Second Corinthians says he was raised up, and he being raised up shall raise us up also. The resurrection is the basis of hope. It has been the hope of the people of God that we too, someday after we die, we will be raised up again and will have eternal life in heaven. And if Jesus was not raised from the dead, what hope do we have? We have none. Christianity would be nothing. It would be a farce. So when we looked at the Bible, we see all of these individuals. Abraham looked for a future, a future that he could not understand, but he had a future hope of the resurrection. Moses and Job and David and Isaiah and Daniel all looked forward to that hope, that hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternity, of spending with God in heaven, of the rewards that God had promised And it is hope that drives a person. Hope is a powerful motivation for living as we do. So, the resurrection to eternal life with God gives us that optimistic hope. It is the hope that we have that propels us to share the gospel. Because we don't want our friends and we don't want our family, we don't want others to face condemnation and hell, the fear of death. It is hope that propels us forward because someday we hope to see our loved ones that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. It is that hope that gives us that purpose, that meaning in life. It is that hope that gives us that joy and that peace that no matter what happens in this life, nothing will compare to the rewards and the future God has laid up for us for he secures our salvation in heaven. And it is that hope of a new body, a new beginning, a sinless existence in eternity filled with joy and peace with God. This is what Peter writes. Peter writes in 1 Peter, to believers who are being persecuted and they have scattered throughout the kingdom. They call them the diaspora, those that have scattered about around um, Asia Minor. And he writes this to these persecuted believers because Rome was after them. And they ran in fear of their lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To obtain an inheritance, which is, number two, imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is the hope. All because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have. There is a reward, the salvation that is revealed, the trueness of one's salvation, the trueness of one's life. And that reward will not fade away. That reward is secure for you, reserved in heaven. Reserved for all of those who have turned from their sin in repentance and placed their faith and trust in Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross for their sins and was raised from the dead. Those who have called out to God to save them from their sin, not just an intellectual belief, but has called out to God to save them from their sin, believing in who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross to die and be raised from the dead on the third day. All of that is essential to salvation and our faith as Christians. Everything you see in this life is momentary. Jesus points out marriage is momentary. Your life, your education, your achievements, your belongings, everything here is momentary. Your life is but a vapor, James says, like mist, like a steam that comes up on boiling water. It's but a mist. It will disappear. But for those who are saved, there is an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, which will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And you, if you do not have that, can have eternal life today. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we come. And we, O oh Father, give you thanks for the hope that we have in Christ. And Father, for those that do not have that hope of eternal life, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. May they bow their knee to you in submission placing their faith and trust in who your Son is and what he has done for them, that they might turn from their own way, that they might receive that free gift of eternal life as they call out to you to save them. By your mercy and by your grace, we pray that you would draw people to yourself in the knowledge and the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.